here this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Reading from the King James. Hope you'll forgive me for that. (laughs) Be sober. Be vigilant. Why? For your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Let's pray. Father, the verse is brief. But the significance is profound. Only you, Lord, are able to capture so much intensity with such a limited vocabulary. We thank you for that. I thank you, Father, for the gift of the Holy Spirit that enlightens our eyes and teaches us your revelation. And so I pray this morning that all things set aside, all of those things that clamor for our attention, for our affection, would be silenced, and that we would only hear from you this morning. Teach us your truths. I pray that your Holy Spirit would examine our hearts. Lord, you have that capacity, that capability of separating joints and marrow and spirit You're a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. And all things are open unto the eyes of you to whom we have to give an account. So as those things are displayed before us, I pray that you would ready our hearts to make changes and bring us more into conformity to your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Can I just comment how much I love the music? in this church. God has gifted this church with some wonderful talent, beautiful voices, percussion, just just all comes together. Reminds me, we were, were, Ruth and I had our three granddaughters, three of our granddaughters. This is probably a year and a half ago. Our youngest uh, then was Dylan. She was about three and a half and we made a stop at the uh, Walgreens because the two older girls had to go to the bathroom and Ruth went inside. And I was out in the vehicle with the youngest, Dylan, who was three and a half. And I saw, thought, well, this is a great opportunity. And uh, just Dylan and I, and I said to Dylan, uh, I started singing. Trust in the Lord with all of... You know that one? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And when I finished the song, I said to Dylan, have you ever heard that song before, Dylan? And she said, Grandpa, that is the worst voice I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) The last I saw her, she was walking on 25 North in Monroe. So uh, I've grown to... Appreciate music and especially in this church. So, 
Um, also, last week, I, I, um, if you remember, I was telling you about Francia, the lady from Bogota, Colombia, who called and apologized to me for not getting saved that Sunday morning. And uh, afterward, Ted came up to me and said, what happened to Francia? So for four bucks, I gave him the answer. And I'll give it to you. Uh, I was kind of focused on just dealing with the repentance, but Francia called me and apologized uh, for not getting saved that Sunday morning. And so we had opportunity to talk a little while longer on the phone and shared some more scripture with her. With her. On Thursday, she called me back and she said, Pastor, you're actually you're the second to know but I trusted Christ as my Savior. And uh, Joe, my husband, was the first to know. But I'm calling to tell you. So just the work of the Spirit of God. And uh, through the Scripture, she came to know Christ on her own, in her home, with her Bible open. Came to know Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. Francia turned out to be quite an evangelist led several of her siblings, including both of her parents, to the Lord. And uh, last we heard that Francie was heading up a women's ministry in the prison in Manchester, New Hampshire. So you just never know what God's going to do. We're familiar with Sherlock Holmes and his, uh, his protege, Mr. Watson. And uh, in one of the short stories, there is a scene where Sherlock Holmes is speaking with Mr. Watson in this rather large uh, foyer, and there's a stairway, a long, wide stairway. And he said, Holmes said to Mr. Watson, um, I'm so tempted to do it with a British accent. Uh, Mr. Watson, how often have you traversed this stairway in the last year? And he said, uh, well, sir, I don't know. Countless times, I imagine. Over a hundred. He said, and Mr. Watson, how many steps are there in this stairway? And Watson thought for a minute, and he said, uh, frankly, I don't know, sir. I would guess 17. Holmes said, 23. My dear Mr. Watson, you see, but you don't observe. I think of that when we come to the scripture. A lot of times we see, but we really don't observe. We just run through a passage of Scripture or even a, a, an expression in a passage of Scripture that we, we don't really stop and take heed to. And 1 Peter 5.8 is one of those passages. Every, every phrase in this single verse is loaded with information. So let's just review a little bit, kind of bring up up to speed. Good to have Pastor and his family back with us. 
Um, I hope it was a restful vacation for you, was it? Good. Good. Um, be sober. Be vigilant. Last week we were kind of reintroduced to Peter. He is the, the sent one, the apostle. He is later in chapter 5 and verse 1. He refers to himself as a fellow elder or a shepherd or a pastor. And um, when you read this epistle, you have to read it from the context of a pastor. From Peter, who is not just the sent one, and I don't think Peter ever got over the reality that God, that Jesus Christ sent him. But he writes with the compassion of a pastor. There, there's a, a tenderness in Peter's writing. Just previous, and, and we're at that portion in chapter 5, and we're, we're running headlong here. Um, but by the time we get to this portion of chapter 5, Peter is just kind of sewing up, kind of trying to wrap up the loose ends. And he ends the, this, this letter with several... Uh, admonitions, several imperatives. But just prior to verse 8, this will blow your socks, is verse 7. Casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. The New American Standard says all your anxieties. It's an interesting statement that Peter makes in light of who he's writing to, these believers who are being buffeted and, and suffering immeasurable harm just because of their testimony of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't say, you're in sin because of your anxiety. No, there, there's compassion there. And Peter says, cast all your anxieties on him. Because he cares for you. There's a tenderness in Peter's voice. But not only was Peter the sent one and the shepherd, he was also the servant. He was also the veteran. Remember, when Peter writes this letter, it's 35 years or more after all of the events of the gospel, after the denial. I think, it's my own personal impression, that while Peter recognized God's forgiveness, there was still somewhat of a a limp in Peter's walk because he never forgot his failures. He got over the disdain of them, but he never forgot the lessons that he learned. And those lessons were conveyed in the years of ministry. And so when Peter writes this verse, and you read verse 8, and uh, perhaps what sticks out is Satan. That's what sticks out in your mind. But I don't think Peter's intention here in these closing admonitions is to do a discourse on angels, elect, and fallen, and Satanology, and all of those things. What Peter has in mind is to say, along with all of your other issues, all of your, 
other suffering, don't forget that you have an enemy whose single desire is to destroy you. What Peter is saying is this, and by the way, cheer up, things could get worse, and certainly they will get worse. We have an enemy whose sole intention is to destroy our soul, and he's a dirty player. He's a dirty player. Then those to whom he's writing, and it's important that we mark this, he's writing to believers. And so when verse 8 says, your adversary the devil, like a roaring lion, seeks, walks about seeking whom he may devour, he's talking about believers there, not unbelievers. They're already dead in trespasses and sin. But this is so poignant and pointed at believers. There are four points to the outline. Last week we looked at two of them. The imperatives, that is, to be sober, sober sober-minded, and to be vigilant. That is, to be accurate in your thinking and to be aware of what's going on. The word that's translated, and Peter likes this word, sober or sober-minded, he's used it three times in this epistle, chapter 1, verse 13, he uses it again. But the idea is that just what the Old Testament says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And we looked at a couple of, of the wiles of the devil, how Satan seeks to in, impact and infect the believer. But it's all centered around thought processes, all centered around thinking. Um, I had a hair somewhere. Excuse me one second. Well, it doesn't matter. I can't. I have a, a magnifier in here somewhere, but it's uh, tangled in the wires. So, um, the issue of accurate thinking of of well ordered that's literally what the term that's translated here means to be sober means to be well ordered it means to have a a set of priorities that your thinking is accurate that it's based on the truth of the word of god and out of that we live paul will say exactly the same thing in philippians chapter 2 If there, there, if there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any bowels of mercy, then fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, same Spirit, one accord, having one mind, having the same mind, Verse 3, he says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but especially, 
every man on the things of others. Then verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be made equal with God, but he emptied himself. He took upon himself no reputation. Four times in those five verses, the expression, the term mind is used. And when he gets to verse 5, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. There, the idea of mind has to do with a mindset with, I think uh, the New American Standard translates it, that let this attitude be in you, this perspective. We, would, we could use the term worldview. Let this worldview be yours. Let this worldview be like the worldview of the Lord Jesus that was based purely upon Scripture. And Paul will say, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices. Vance Havner says the problem with living sacrifices is that they always try to crawl off the altar. Present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable under God, which is your logical service of worship, which is your reasonable service. And in conjunction, do not be conformed to this world. Don't embrace the world's view. Do not be conformed to this world. But be ye transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Well, how do we do that? How do we develop that mind view? That world view? We have to know the word of God, beloved. We've got to immerse ourselves in the scripture so that we think in biblical categories. So that when we're presented with a challenge to our thinking, we're looking at it through the grid of Scripture. See, uh, seeing that we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us and run with patience the race that is set before us. How do we do that? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now was set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Don't stop at verse 2. Verse 3 says this. Consider him. That word is normally translated meditate. Think. Ponder. Consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. For you've not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. That's a call to personal holiness, and it's the call that Peter is making to personal holiness when we're in the, in the apex of conflict and suffering. And last week we looked just at one area where Satan pulls out his darts, and that is he is the accuser of the brethren. 
But we learn from Colossians chapter 2. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. He took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Satan, as the accuser of the brethren, will seek not only to accuse us falsely, but sometimes the accusations are valid. We stand guilty. But the story doesn't end there. Because the very moment that you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your sins were nailed just like the handwriting of ordinances above his head. They were nailed to the cross, and then the Spirit of God says this, taking it out of the way. We are clean. We are clear. What sin? What sin? So that's where we were last week. There are are other wiles of the devil, Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6. We're not ignorant of those things. But what one weapon in the Christian armor in Ephesians chapter 6 is the word of God, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's a little different. The sword here is not the sword of Hebrews chapter 4, the, the Machiah, the big machete. It's the stoikos. It's the kind of like the exacto knife. It's for precision cutting. It's something that the Roman soldier would keep in his sheath, in his belt, for hand-to-hand combat. And it's something that he could quickly do in one motion, grab that stoikos and cut the jugular. It was for precision. And the term that's translated the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is not the logos, it's not the discourse, it's the chrema. It's the specific statement of the word of God that is strategically planted in conflict. Knowing the word of God, thinking in biblical category, well-ordered, accurate, and aware. So we talked a little bit about those things. There are other tactics that Satan uses. By the way, Do you know who is one of the strongest believers in the truth of Scripture? Is Satan. Because he develops all of his strategies around that. When Jesus said, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, a house divided against itself cannot stand, Satan says, I'm taking that one to the bank. He goes from these two imperatives to this identity. For your adversary, the devil. The term adversary literally means accuser. It's a courtroom term. And for our Latino friends, the word devil is diabolos in Greek. 
And the relationship that the believer has to Satan is that Satan is our enemy. He is a predator that seeks to devour us. Pretty graphic language that Peter uses here. And I can't help but think when Peter uses that expression, he has clearly in his mind, though it's not stated here, the episode when he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And a paragraph later, Jesus says to him, I'm going to die and be resurrected in three days. And Peter shouts to him and he says, No! And just one paragraph after that, God speak, the flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven, Jesus turns to him and he says directly, Get thee behind me, Satan. Peter was familiar with that. Peter was not only familiar with his failures, but he was familiar with the restoration and never got over it. So in verse 4 of chapter 1, when Peter talks about God's great mercies, that, that is the saddle in which Peter sits when he says these things. And there are other things that Satan uses. In Isaiah chapter 14, and and I don't want to digress too far here, but verses 12 to 14 is where we, we get the name Lucifer. And God says through the prophet Isaiah with regard to Lucifer, there are five I wills that Lucifer mentions in those verses. And the last one is this, I will be like the most high God. I will be like El Elyon. It's interesting because the term antichrist really has two, two sections of definition. One is anti is against. That's his motivation. But the word anti in the Greek also can mean in the place of or instead of. That isn't his motivation, but that's his means. He will do, he'll look like God. Marvel not, Paul says, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light and his ministers as ministers of righteousness. And he'll do things like this. He'll substitute relief for true peace. He'll influence the thinking even of a believer to say, you know, the best thing for you is to get out of that marriage. And you get out of the marriage, and for a while there's relief. But in your heart there's disobedience. You say, well, it's not fair. That's not the basis of righteousness. But pretty soon those things that were sweet in the mouth become bitter in the belly. And how many of God's people have fallen prey because they got off in their thinking from biblical category and they weren't being sober-minded. There are a lot of other issues that we we could talk about. But I want you to understand that the relationship 
this identity is that Satan is our, our enemy. And then he goes to an illustration. But before we get to the illustration, I want to share one with you. Kevin and Marcy were middle-aged, middle-American farmers out in the Midwest. Things were successful for Kevin. Kevin was a grain farmer who had come on some hard times. Blight had had hit the crop the first year. He lost more than half of the crop. The second year, blight hit a second time and destroyed the entire crop. There are other things that happened, and uh, Kevin was under a lot of financial duress and stress. The next year, just before harvest, Marcy got sick. They weren't sure what it was. Eventually, he took her to the doctor through a series of tests, issues, she was discovered to have stage four cervical cancer. After quite a host of treatments with chemotherapy and radiation, the doctor's diagnosis was that she would have probably a year to live. Within four months, Marcy was home with the Lord. Just before she died, there was a lightning strike completely wiped out their entire crop and two of the maintenance buildings incinerating a lot of the the equipment. Gavin and Marcy were part of a gospel preaching church. With all of this, Kevin began to withdraw farther and farther from the church People in the, in the fellowship got caught like so many of us do from time to time. Didn't know what to say, so they didn't say anything. Kevin found himself quite alone, apart from the church, discouraged, distressed, all alone. Thanksgiving came and his two sons that were out of state in the agricultural field, but in the business end of it, not farmers, persuaded him to come to their house for Thanksgiving. And so he went on that Wednesday, and, but he came back home on Friday. Sat in his house right by the big field stone fireplace where there was a braided rug and two big overstuffed leather chairs. Mid-morning on Monday, he had a fire going. Kevin hadn't been, hadn't been to church for months. And suddenly there was a knock on the door. Kevin got out of the chair, walked over to the door, and to his dismay and chagrin, it was the pastor. Kevin opened the main door. Pastor still on the other side of the storm door. Kevin just turned around, 
walked back to his chair. Pastor opened the door, came in, said, hi, Kevin. Kevin just grunted, sat in one of the chairs. Pastor took off his coat, leaned it against the chair, sat in the chair. They just sat there, the two of them. Not a word being spoken, fire blazing. And then, without a word or invitation, the pastor got up, walked over to the fireplace, set the screen to the side, took a pair of tongs, reached in to the middle of the blazing fire, pulled out a red-hot coal, and just set it on the hearth. Put the tongs back, sat back in the chair, no word being said. The two sat there and watched as that blazing ember diminished to just a black piece of charcoal. Pastor got up, grabbed the tongs, grabbed a piece of charcoal, put it back on the fire where it reignited. Put the tongs back, the screen back, put on his coat, and exited, never said a word. Next Sunday, guess who was in church? Kevin sat there through the message. At the end of the sermon, Kevin raised his hand and he said, Preacher, may I say something? Kevin stood up from his pew and he said, You know, I've been to this church X amount of years, my wife and I. We've heard a lot of good sermons. But he said, The hardest sermon. I've ever heard the pastor preach took place this past Monday without a word being spoken. And Kevin began to cry. And he thanked the church and the pastor for loving him, for caring for him, for staying with him. You say, okay, pastor. Okay, spring, but what does that have to do with what we're talking about? Well, the third point is the the illustration. Like a roaring lion. That's all Peter says, like a roaring lion. But I think David is up in heaven saying, you need to say, Selah. Stop and think about that. Don't be like Mr. Watson and see it, but don't observe it. This is an illustration out of God's creation. Now, I was watching a program of National Geographic about the lion. And I'm thankful for the DVR because I stopped the program, went and got my notebook, Rewound it and started from the beginning. The National Geographic didn't create the lion. God did. But this episode had to do with two male lions that were eating 
a uh, horn-capped water buffalo. 2,500-pound buffalo, 150-pound male lion. The male lion, once he gets to be three years old, he's kicked out of the pride. So the pride is made up of all lionesses and young male lions. And this episode tracked the life of these two male lions. I'm going to call them George and Cleo, just for reference sake. They were the primary and secondary, and they were kicked out of the pride. There was a large herd of this water buffalo, and the lions really kept their distance from the water buffalo. Usually they went after antelope, but these guys were hungry. But they wouldn't get too close to the herd because when the herd was together, they would trample the lion. And with, that, with their horns, it looked the calf horns, it looked like a matador's headpiece. But the horns came out and they came to a really sharp point. And they, they, at one point they showed the water buffalo goring a male lion and literally picking him up and throwing him up in the air, 12 feet in the air, and landed. And like a good cat, landed on his feet and took off. But these two male lions were incredibly smart. What they did is they would stalk around the herd, this large herd. And what they did is they spooked this little bull calf. And it took off. Now, Mama has a dilemma. Do I go after my child, my little calf, or do I stay with the safety of the herd? And apparently, her mother instincts, she went after the calf. That was the first part of the strategy for the two lions was to separate mama from the herd. And it worked. And the, the little calf just took off. The lions said, we'll leave that for dessert later on. But now mama has been separated from the herd. 2,500 pounds. And the strategy that took place was amazing. It set into motion this whole issue. And so what happened with George and Cleo, they separated. George walked over, stood face to face with that bull, with that cow, about 15 feet away, eyeball to eyeball. That water buffalo just stared, the lion stared. Big, huge mane. Kind of disproportionate to the 150-pound body. Cleo circles behind. At a certain point, you couldn't see anything going on, moving, except there was a little bit of grass, high grass, moving because Cleo was making his way slinking 
predatory. And then the separation from the herd, the grass moving, now there's a signal to George who's eyeball to eyeball. And George does two things. He starts growling and he fluffs his mane, making him appear to be even bigger. It works because the purpose of that is twofold. It's intimidation and distraction. And now Mama is watching what George is doing. Looks over to the calf, looks back to the herd. She's divided in her thinking. George just keeps staring at her. And it's almost as if George and Cleon must have a wireless connection. Because suddenly, at a given time, Cleon will leap. The uh, announcer said, a lion can leap from a dead stop, can leap 20 feet in the air. And just at the right time, the signal is given, and Cleon jumps when her attention is divided to all of these things. But Cleon d- jumps on her, not to kill her. He jumps on right on her, the back of her spine, right on the top of her legs. And he sinks those two-inch visors into into the spine and starts gnawing on the tendons. And then Mama looks back to try to thwart him off. That's the signal for George. And George leaps right with precision to her throat. The legs collapse. Mama falters. George goes right for the jugular. And in a matter of seconds, that 2,500-pound water buffalo is dead, pouring out its blood. And the feast begins. That 150-pound lion, the two of them, the two male lions, start to tear that water buffalo apart. Just a matter of minutes that the pride shows up, helps with the feast, and they totally, totally devour that animal. And the National Geographic photographer apparently must have laid on the ground, aimed the camera at the carcass, and all that was left were the ribs. And you could see the horizon through the ribs. Powerful, powerful shot. When Peter says, like a roaring lion, that illustration points for us the intention. There is the imperatives, the identification, there is the illustration, and then there is the intention. For your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Let me just tell you real quickly with regard to the intention of Satan for the believer. 
It's personal, it's predatory, and it's primal. Explain what I mean. It's personal because he says, your adversary, the devil. He didn't, the, Peter didn't say, the adversary, the devil. He said, your adversary. Lucifer said, I will be like the most high God. Lucifer says to the believer who is afflicted, to the believer who is suffering, to try to just get them off track. Not a major departure, just a slight deviation. Satan says quietly, do you know I have a wonderful plan for your life? It's personal. Now listen, Satan is not sovereign. He wants to be like El Elyon, the most high God, possessor of of heaven and earth. But he is not God. When God says in Romans 8, and we know that all things work together for good, that's based on God's sovereign care, who's in control. We know that because we have confidence. We don't always understand what God does, but we do understand who he is. And he's promised us protection. Satan says, I have a better idea. Satan plays the hunches. And his place of attack is the mind. That's why Peter says, your mind needs to be set. It needs to be well-ordered. You need to be sober. You need to think in biblical category. Just like Jesus did when he was tempted. In his most vulnerable state, after 40 days, then the devil came to him, tempted him. And what did Jesus do? He quoted Deuteronomy. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We are familiar, at least to to some degree, with the story behind It Is Well With My Soul, H.G. Spofford. Some of us codgers who have been around for a while will remember Paul Harvey. Remember Paul Harvey? And he would say this, And now, the rest of the story. We're familiar with H.G. Spofford that wrote the hymn, the words to the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. After he lost his four daughters in a tragic shipwreck. He had lost, he was an elder in a Presbyterian church out in Chicago Great friends, close friends, and big supporter of D.L. Moody in Ira Sankey. He had lost almost everything in the great Chicago fire as a real estate investor. Arrangements had been made for the family to go to Europe. They weren't exactly sure where they were going to go, but they were going to go to Europe for a vacation to try to get away from some of the issues. And the night before they were to leave, 
H.G. Spofford and his wife, Annie, Anna. She was 15 years his junior. The day before they were to leave, business required him to stay, and so he sent his wife and four daughters on ahead. They weren't a day into the, into the voyage when the ship that they were aboard was rammed by a British cargo ship. And they went down. Four daughters. Annie, who was 11. Maggie, who was nine. Bessie, who was five. And Tanetta, who was two. Why do I tell you their names? Because they were real people. They weren't just statistics. They were real people. The biographer says that after the ship was rammed, it was only 12 minutes before it was totally submerged. And Anna and her four daughters were on their knees on the deck praying. Lord, if it be your will, deliver us. And if it's your will for you to take the children home, to take us home, then give us the courage to withstand. One by one, each of the girls were taken. A board from the deck came up, plunked her right on the head as she held Tanetta in her arms and then gone. Another British vessel came and rescued her. She was floating on that same board that conked her on the head. It's what kept her alive. They got to, not to England, they got to Wales. And she wired her husband Horatio. The wire said, Saved alone. Now what do I do? I was interested to find out that while she was in the hospital, nine days in a coma, while she was in the hospital, she was cared for by a Welsh pastor whose name was Simon Weiss. (laughs) Check it out. Just interesting tidbit. Horatio Spofford, well, just to abbreviate the story, got there. They got back back home. Ira Sankey had a very close friend and a protege. His name was Philip Bliss, P.P. Bliss. P.P. Bliss wrote the music to the poetry. You remember they were, Horatio boarded a ship. They were right about over the area where the uh, Villa du Havre had had sunk, submerged. The captain called him up and he said, we're we're right over the watery grave, about three miles down. And Horatio Spofford said to the captain, it is a good thing 
when it costs something to trust the Lord. And he went back down to his cabin and he wrote the words to it is well with my soul. The second stanza of which says this, though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. In the midst of that suffering and tragedy, he was able to look beyond and grab hold of the promises of the word of God. I mentioned P.P. Bliss because about a year after E.B. Bliss wrote the music. He was traveling at the admonition and encouragement of D.L. Moody and Ira Sankey. He became an evangelist. He was traveling to a meeting. They were crossing Ohio. He and his wife and the train, the trestle, gave way. And the train crashed. P.B. Bliss was thrown from the train And he survived. But the train caught fire. And his wife was wedged in to the train. She couldn't get out. P.P. Bliss went back into the train. And perished with his wife. Their bodies were never found. Six years after Spofford lost his four daughters, they had a son, Horatio. But Horatio lived three years. He died of scarlet fever. Here's a man, an elder in a Presbyterian church, a giver to missions, a lover of the ministry, a lover of the gospel, whose life just seemed to be marked by tragedy and affliction. But God has a meticulous sovereignty for every one of us. And like the writer of Hebrews, these all, in chapter 11, they all live by faith, not receiving the promise. And I think about Job. You know, you talk about the accuser of the brethren. The day came when Satan came before God. And God says, where have you been? I've been walking to and fro the whole earth. Prowling. Seeking whom he may devour. And what's interesting to me is, God says to Satan, he asks him a question. He does not say, have you seen Job? He says, Have you seen my servant, Job? For I have no man like him who eschews evil and fears me. There's a little bit of poignancy there. Have you seen my servant, Job? You know what Satan's saying? I want servants. I want him to serve me. And he accuses Job of his loyalty because he has a soft life, he really was accusing God the Father of making it too easy. 
And so God, without communicating with Job, God uses Satan in Job's life. Job is on earth not knowing what's going on while this dialogue is going on in heaven. And God says to him, go ahead. But you can't take his life. God set the boundaries. And so Job lost everything as we remember the story. And Job's response is, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And then more loss. And Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then Satan impacts the thinking of Job's wife. While Job says, blessed be the name of the Lord, his wife says, curse God and die. I don't know that that was said so much out of anger as much as it was out of mercy. You fear God. If you curse him, he'll kill you. You'll be, you'll be relieved. But that wasn't God's plan. Sometimes in our deepest afflictions, in our hardest trials, Satan will seek to use other believers to discourage. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well. It is well with my soul. Satan's intentions are personal. They're predatory. He walks about. He's looking. He's searching. Sometimes, beloved, we are so beleaguered, kind of battle fatigue of trying to win the war spiritually that we lay down our weapons that we get separated from the flock. You might be here this morning, you're here in body, but but you're long gone. Kevin, when he gave testimony that morning before the church, said that he had become guilty of the very things that he was accusing people in that body of, that he had become cold, callous, and judgmental. Because they didn't know what to say, they didn't say anything, and that got interpreted by Kevin as that they didn't care. When the fact of the matter is they did care, didn't know how to express it. The battle that we fight is not just in our circumstances, but in our thinking, in our perspective. We we don't Always embrace the mind of Christ. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee because he trusts in thee. There's a 
book out. It's been out for a while. In fact, it's Joe Bailey. He was an editor of a Christian magazine. Joe Bailey had seven children. He and his wife lost three of them before the age of 10. Three different instances, three different situations. He's a man who's acquainted with grief. And he wrote, the first book that he wrote was called View from a Hearse. They later changed the title of that book to the last thing we talk about. But in it, Joe Bailey talks about sitting in the church after having lost their third child. He was nine years old. Said one of the leaders from the church came to his house And in Bailey's words, what he had to say sounded kind of harsh. He says, he told me of things that I I already knew about God's sovereign care and that he works all things together. But the promises that he was echoing came across like rebuke. And I remember praying, Lord, please get rid of him. Two days later, Raymond, a Spanish-speaking fellow that he sat next to in the pew on Sunday, knocked on the door, called him, asked if he could come over. Joe Bailey said yes, knocked on the door. He was ushered into the house. Bailey says, He spoke softly. He prayed quietly. And when he left, the tears wet the shoulder of my T-shirt. And he said, I prayed, God, please make him stay. There's a ministry there. I'm reminded, I think of so many things going through my mind right now. But I think of the little girl who, whose friend Katie was killed in a car accident. A few weeks after the accident, nine years old, she said to her mom, Mom, I'm going down to Mrs. Taylor's house, Katie's house. She said, okay. And out she went. She was gone for a little while, not too long. She came back. And her mom said, did you go to Mrs. Taylor's house? And she said, yes, I did. Her mother said, what, what did you say to her? She said, I didn't say anything, Mom. I just got on the couch next to her and helped her cry. You see... Tears are a language that need no interpreter. The psalmist says that God keeps them in a bottle. He numbers them. Joe Bailey didn't need counsel. Joe Bailey needed comfort. And that's what we're called to do to those who are in any affliction. 2 Corinthians 1 
says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, the Father who gives birth to mercy, and the sovereign God who can dictate comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulation so that we may be able to comfort others who are in any tribulation with the comfort wherewith we are comforted of God. It's not common experience. It's common comfort that's the ministry. I'll close with this one. None of you know him. But if you know Jesus Christ, one day you're going to meet him. His name is Gene Hebert. Gene and I have been friends for over 20 years. Gene was one of these guys who was left at the proverbial city hall steps as a newborn. Gene had a twin who was perfect in health, but Gene, Gene had cerebral palsy. Gene was the same age as I am. We were the same age. And I remember my first Sunday preaching at Epsom Bible Church. And those back doors open and down the center aisle in a wheelchair comes this frail man, so skinny, baggy clothes, glasses that were cocked, and they wheeled Gene down, parked him right in the front. The front pew had been removed. They parked him right there. And right in the middle of the sermon, as I was so nervous about preaching my first sermon, right in the middle of the sermon, Gene pipes up and he says, What can God do for me? felt like I had to go change my pants. I, I didn't know what to say. Dan, who, I'm sorry, Dick Gates, who wheeled him, took him from the nursing home from Epsom Manor. Dick in, in, translated, he said, Gene wants to know what God can do for him. Over the next 20 years, <laughs> Gene and I got to be good friends. I love Gene Hebert, and uh, I could tell you so many stories about Gene, but I will tell you this. For Gene, coming to church was not an obligation. It was a privilege. All he knew for a family was the church family. He was in Epsom Manor, the nursing home. And there were loving, caring people in Epsom Bible Church who took, I don't know if I'm losing this or not, who took Gene under their wing. Dan was one of the guys, Dan Yet was one of the guys who would every, every Sunday night pick Gene up at 
at the manor and bring him to church. One night, Dan called me and said, an emergency had come up. He couldn't pick up Gene. Could I call someone to go pick up Gene? I said, I'll take care of it. And I hung, hung up the phone, and I thought, I'm not calling anybody to go get Gene. I'm going to go get, get Gene. And so I left early. I went over to the Epsom Manor to, to pick him up. And uh, so we got, I wheeled him out in the wheelchair out to the car. And I have to put him in the, in the seat to put the wheelchair in the back seat. And uh, I said, grab my neck, Gene. And that little guy, he put his arm around my neck and it was like a vice grip. I mean, that guy was so strong. But Gene was so nervous. And we, we were laughing because I, I, his body was so gnarled. There wasn't one normal joint in his body. And finally got him in, and I got around, and Gene said, I'm sorry. You don't have nothing to be sorry about. Well, don't worry, because I thought that he thought we were going to be late. And I just said to him, they're not going to start without me, so don't worry about it. But he wasn't worried about being late. Gene was so nervous that he wet himself. So got him back out of the car. We didn't have enough time to change him, so I just left him back. Those were the kinds of things. In Gene's room, right next to his bed, he had a, a cork board, like a bulletin board. And... Uh, he would get pictures from people in the church and he would pin the pictures on that bulletin board. And that was his prayer reminder. He prayed for those people. You see, Gene was institutionalized because they thought he was uneducable. So they never tried. But Gene was a smart guy. One day I walked into his room and right in the middle of that corkboard was a picture of me. And I tell you, it broke my heart. Every day. And Gene would say, Pastor, I pray for you. Man. One night, I was preaching right in the middle of the sermon. The doors open, in comes Dan with Gene in the wheelchair and Gene's got a Boston Red Sox hat on. And I stopped the sermon and I said, Red Sox? What are you doing with a Red Sox? He said, I like them. I said, I thought you were a Yankee fan. Nope. And he got a big smile on his face. You don't like the Yankees? Nope. Why don't you like the Yankees? Because they're bums. I resigned from the church five weeks after I resigned. Gene went home with the Lord. I think about Gene all the time. I think about 
people who suffer with affliction. What can God do for me? Why can't God make me walk? Just like that. And I would say, try to come up with clever answers that never seem to satisfy. But I think about Gene being in heaven. And among all of the other people that I want to see, family and friends, Paul, Peter, I want to see Gene. And in my mind's eye, in my imagination, I have this idea of coming to the pearly gate. And Gene's going to be standing there. Standing. I see him with his arms folded, leaning against the pillar that holds the gate. And he's just going to say in his quiet voice, Hi, John. Want a race? By faith, not having received a promise. You know, all around us, people are hurting. We've been praying for Bill in Lolita. A lot of questions that aren't answered about her health. Don't know what God's will. But I do know this, that God has a meticulous providence, a meticulous sovereignty that's being exercised in that family right now. Don't know what to say. Maybe we don't need to say anything. I love being part of a Spanish family. I love the Spanish language. I love a lot about the Spanish culture. I like, I love the displays of affection. But in Spanish, it's such a graphic language. In English, somebody dies and we go to the funeral home and we say, I'm sorry. Why? Did you have something to do with it? No, no. I... But in Spanish, they say, lo siento. I feel with you. I may not feel like you. Maybe I've never lost a loved one. But I feel with you. I feel your pain. I weep with those who weep. There needs to be more of that, beloved, as, as far as I'm concerned, in the body of Christ. One of the men who discipled me early on in pastoral ministry, my wife and I were sitting having dinner with he and his wife, and I asked Harry, I said, Harry, you're, you're kind of at, at the end of ministry right now with your chest pressed up against the finish line. If you could have done anything different in your ministry, what would you have done? And I thought asking him that question, you know, he's going to stroke his chin and give some thought to it. He answered 
the question almost without thinking. And he said to me, John, I would love more and I would fight less. Made all the sense in the world to me. You see, in Philippians 2, they'll say, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Let that be your mindset. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be made equal with God. And theologians talk about the kenosis theory verses 5 and 6. My hardest part is to get past verses 3 and 4. Esteeming others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own needs, but especially on the needs of others. Let's bow in prayer. Father, there's nothing more I can say except to thank you for all that you have given to us in your son Jesus Christ and in your unfallible word. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.